Once upon a time, there was a young podcaster, but he had an enchantment upon him of a fearful sort, which could only be broken when he finished his list. He locked himself away in his tower, delving deeper and deeper into insanity. Many others tried to support him in his quest and keep up with their own lists in a consistent way, but none prevailed. He waited in solitude, watching franchise after franchise for the end of his enslavement, when he would be free to watch television again. <laughs> yeah, like that's ever gonna happen. Somebody once told me the world is gonna roll me. I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. She was looking kind of dumb with her finger and her thumb in the shape of an L on her forehead. Well, the years start coming and they don't stop coming. Fed to the rules and I hit the ground running. Didn't make sense not to live for fun. Your brain gets smart, but your head gets dumb. So much to do, so much to see. So what's wrong with taking the back streets? You'll never know if you don't go. You'll never shine if you don't glow. Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock star. Hello, my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to I Don't Know Why We're Doing This, where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have watched a movie that's quite near and dear to us. Uh, It's from our childhoods. It is a DreamWorks film. It is, of course, the legendary meme factory that is Shrek. But first, again, we're going to reiterate, we're going to be changing the name of the podcast as well as the artwork that appears on your podcast app. We're changing the name to The Long Watch, and that's going to be happening on our first episode after our Best of 2020. It's going to be March the 13th is the the day that that, ep- that first episode with the new name is going to come out. That's the day that the shift is going to happen. We're going to record a little one and a half minute disclaimer to put in the feed on the Wednesday beforehand just to remind everyone so you don't get alarmed when the name of the podcast and the artwork change. You're not going to go, oh, what? what is this strange podcast in my podcast feed? You're doing everything we can to make this as smooth a transition as possible. Don't worry, the sky is not falling. Yes. But first, before we get into our deep dive on Shrek, we're going to talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure. I have seen two films that are in the cinemas this week to talk about. I'm sort of polishing off some last 2020 movies in order to make my best of list. First off is Another Round. It is a Danish language dramedy directed by Thomas Vinterberg. It's about four middle-aged high school teachers named Martin, played by Mads Mikkelsen, Tommy, played by Thomas Bo Larsen, Peter, played by Lars Renth, and Nicolaj, played by Magnus Malang. And they're all sort of having this midlife crisis. They're not happy where their lives are. They're sort of sleepwalking through the thing. They've lost all of the energy and self-confidence they had in their youth. And so they try this crazy experiment that they've read about, which is about maintaining a 0.5 blood alcohol level at all times. And as that experiment goes on, it keeps escalating and it goes the way that you think it will. <laughs> uh, this is this focuses on Martin Most, the Mads Mikkelsen character. He's sort of this milk toast guy. He's a history teacher. He used to be really good at his job. He used to have a really 
passionate marriage. He used to have a lot of good prospects ahead of him, but he's just sort of fallen into this sleepwalking phase of his of his life where he's just sort of bored and monotone at all times and he's just sort of desperate to feel something again and and it it really uses him primarily and the others as well but him primarily we spend the most time with him as sort of a way to examine midlife crises middle-aged malaise this sort of idea that you're passing the point of no return at around this point that you're closer to the end of your life one morning you wake up and you're closer to the end of your life than you are to the beginning and that that makes him sort of panic because all of a sudden he realizes that you know it's all gone and he's not going to get it again and then what's he really doing with his time and with his life i used to be with it but then they changed what it was now what i'm with isn't it and what's it seems weird and scary to me it'll happen to you the movie is a dramedy it is funny not laugh out loud funny, more like dryly amusing most of the time. And it isn't as cringy as I was expecting. It isn't like that kind of like embarrassment humor that I was expecting. But you do spend a lot of the time, especially in the second half of the movie, with gritted teeth waiting for the inevitable slip up, the inevitable way in which this all will explode. It, it also has some stuff to say about drinking culture, about the culture of alcohol consumption, about the culture of, you know, social drinking and, you know, have a drink, loosen up, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, apparently, this is particularly relevant material when it comes to Denmark. I did a little reading online. The, drink, the legal drinking age in Denmark is 16. And a study shows that 15-year-olds in, in Denmark drink double the European average. So... This is apparently something that is like culturally relevant for this movie that's obviously made in Denmark, but it it, it has resonance elsewhere. Obviously, Australia has has a drinking culture that that seems uh, that this seems relevant to as well. Vinterberg directs things really interestingly, and kind of, it kind of contributes to that sort of gritted teeth. How is this going to go thing? Because he uses handheld all of the time when they're when they're drinking. So it's sort of wobbly, it's sort of not quite stable, and it sort of this adds to the feeling that, like, they're, is one of them going to, like, slip up? Is one of them, like, going to... Because they're teaching high yeah. school students while they're drunk. And, like, you're just waiting for something awful to happen or for them to, you know, expose themselves in some way. It has a really strong ending as well, an ending that I'm sort of... I turned over in my head a number of times since I saw it and can mean multiple things, but it, it, it's a nice little, it, it's not pat and contrived, but it's also not sac. It, it's also not like, uh, I don't know, nihilistic and brutal either. It's, it's the right tone to strike. I think I next watched synchronic. It is a sci-fi thriller directed by Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. It's about two paramedics, Steve, played by Anthony Mackie, and Dennis, played by Jamie Dornan. There's this new designer drug on the scene called Synchronic, and it keeps turning up at the, at the scenes of these bizarre deaths that these paramedics are called to. And uh, it's also turning up, you know, uh, teenagers especially are disappearing, and this drug is found at the site of their disappearance. And then Dennis's teenage daughter, Brianna, played by Ali Ioannidis, disappears. 
and Synchronic is found at the site of her disappearance. And things get really weird. This is super unusual. It's a very unique idea. I'm wary of spoilers here. Uh, the sheer, the like, if I told you exactly what this movie was about, I think it would kind of... I think it's best to go in more of a... with a surprised angle. Like, better to go in cold than to know necessarily the, the exact stuff that this movie is going to be about. But... It is very high concept sci-fi. It's idea driven, you know. It's 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 that kind of Twilight Zone thing of what if, you know. It's that what if idea where we've got this cool kernel of an idea and we're going to just explore it in every angle and we're going to go into it intellectually of of how things would break down and what it would mean and and we're going to look at this every way, you know, that this isn't an action film. It isn't a horror film. It isn't like getting by on spectacle. This is very cerebral, often very, very slow burn, slow paced science fiction in a way that we don't get a whole lot of in the mainstream anymore. And I really appreciated that. It's character driven too. It spends a lot of time with these characters, exploring them, giving them three dimensional personalities it's grounded, uh, not in the events that de- are depicted like it's science fiction still, but it's grounded in the sense that it's sort of putting all of that in the real world, putting all of that, you know, wild science fictiony stuff in the real world and with real people with real problems. Yeah, like the people react the way that people would to mm. things. I will say that the, the script by Justin Benson, uh, the co-director, he wrote it as well. It's a little unwieldy. Some of his dialogue does not sound good spoken aloud, and it kind of leaves the actors high and dry at some points. Uh, but the movie ends very strongly. Um, I, I liked the second half more than the first half. They really start to... The first half is them setting up a lot of ideas, and then the second half is them paying all of that off. And they do that in a really interesting way. I'm very interested in in Benson and Moorhead as directors. I'm interested in the other stuff that they've done previously. I'm interested in whatever they're going to do next. I know that they are signed on to direct the Marvel series Moon Knight. Yes. Which, from what I know about Moon Knight, seems a good fit. Like, particularly the Jeff Lemire run is particularly their sort of style. Yeah, it's very trippy. Uh, a lot of their stuff is very trippy, and they're they're good directors, and they have a really good use of their budget. They make the movie seem more expensive than it is, which is a talent in and of itself. Uh, they they had limited um, resources to work with. I mean, this is I think their biggest budget movie, but it's still it's not like you know fifty million dollars, but they make it look like fifty million dollars, you know. Um, so just get so just this is a yes or a no question. You talked the other week about how two of their films have This is not connected. No. Okay. This is not connected to their other films. Yeah. I think you guys would like it. It's very trippy. At home I watched Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. It is a Chinese language historical martial arts film directed by Ang Lee. It's based on the Wang Dulu novel of the same name, set in 1700s China. There's this legendary warrior, Li Mubai, played by Chao Yun-fat, and he has this quote-unquote friend, Yu Shu Lin, played by Michelle Yeoh. They're not they're friends, but they're like got that will they or won't they thing where there's mm. this whole backstory where they you know can't get together but they really want to get together. Blah blah blah. 
But there's this struggle that is occurring. Uh, there is this young, confused aristocrat named Zhen Yu. She's played by Zhang Ji. And she is sort of being influenced by this this evil warrior bandit, Jade Fox, played by Chang Pei Pei. And it sort of becomes a fight for her soul between Jade Fox and between Li Mu Bai and Yu Shu Lian. I feel kind of weird criticising this due to sort of the cultural difference, the culture shock of it. Uh, this is a very specific genre in Chinese culture, uh, wuxia. It, it's that sort of not really fantasy, but very fantastical historical yeah. martial arts epic. It's a very specific type of story that I'm just not familiar with, and most Western audiences are not familiar with. So I'm a little hesitant at... at I, I wonder about my own qualifications for talking about this. But uh, I found it a little strangely paced. We spend a little too much time in this sort of city area in the first half of the movie where there's a lot of talking going on and, and there's a lot of, of the characters just hanging out with each other that I kind of felt like, okay, when are we really going to get to the plot here? The plot's coming in dribs and drabs. Uh, and there's there's this really jarring flashback where the movie will ju- just suddenly stop for 15 minutes, where it shows us this flashback to uh, Gen Yu's past in the desert somewhere, and it's like whiplash. It's like suddenly the movie stops dead, and we're doing this whole other thing for 15 minutes. It's a dead weight. But it picks up again in the last third. It's It turns into a really interesting, character-driven finale. I'm not sure I really understood the very last scene in the movie. It, it's ambiguous in a lot of ways. I'm sure that many people have written many college essays about what it means, but it is quite a striking ending. I'll give it that. It, and it, it dumps you into the world, which I liked. It's sort of like there's, there's no... There's no, like, well, well, these are the rules or anything. It's like, no, we're in 1700s China now. There's, like, all these warriors. And I, I don't know enough about 1700s China, but I, I think there's, like, you know, additional sort of f- fantastical myths and legends elements to what's going on here as well. So it, it kind of feels like, it, I mean, it doesn't hold your hand. It's just, like, puts you in here, expects you to pay attention and pick up on the concepts it's throwing at you and the characters and, you know, this, this order of warrior monks living on a mountain somewhere that we never actually see but they're important to the story and um you know it's talking about characters legendary warriors who have died before the start of the movie and you you got to keep track of all that it feels like you've been dropped into this living breathing world which i really enjoyed and it has some interesting things to say about traditional gender roles i mean there's the 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 parallel between this confused aristocrat gen yu uh and the Yushu Len character played by Michelle Yeoh, that they are sort of these two women in a, in a male dominated society that Michelle Yeoh kind of is as good a martial artist as anyone, but is not really treated that way. And that, you know, Gen Yu is expected to marry off to some rich prick. And that's not really what she wants. She wants to go back to the desert and hang out with her cool bandit boyfriend so there's some interesting stuff to say about all of that. And the action is just terrific. I mean, this is the Waifu era. This is when it really started to make its way into the West. This movie did very well in the, in the West. So you've got a lot of, like, fantastic action scenes of them jumping around the place, jumping from roof to roof like, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi. And they get into that Matrix shit. 
Yeah, and and there's like fight scenes in the treetops, but when I say the treetops, I mean like the very very tops of the trees, yeah. like the stuff that you can't stand on or it breaks. They're sort of like on their tiptoes, dancing on these tiny little, you know, very slender branches that would obviously break if anyone actually stood on it. It's a very strange look. It's a very fantastical look, and I really dug it. The countryside is also very beautiful. Like, they make a lot of good use of of the environment that they're shooting in, which is a shame, makes it an extra shame that we spend so much time in the city uh, on what appear to be backlots. Uh, studio backlots and we spend more time in the desert in the flashback it's like no let's see the mountains let's see you know these rivers and forests yeah, and but things. you're a little bit biased aren't you Lawson it just it's it's just a more interesting it's, it's even it goes to the way that Ang Lee shoots it he has more options in that than he does when he's just looking at sort of you know old 1700s architecture you know yeah. And it's got a very fun, it's got a very nice cello-heavy score by Duntan. It's available for streaming on Netflix if anyone is interested. Our next watch the sequel, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Sword of Destiny. It is directed by Wu Ping Yuan. It's a Netflix movie, the first Netflix movie that I've encountered on the list. It was actually the first movie that Netflix ever commissioned. It was not the first to release, though. Uh, it is based on the Wang Dulu novel Iron Knight Silver Vase, which uh, came out... It, it, it itself was a sequel to the Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon novel, which in and of itself was actually the third novel in the series, but whatever. Um, <laughs> there's this warlord named Hades Die. He's played by Jason Scott Lee. He is sort of running around the countryside, taking over the place, and he wants the legendary green destiny sword. And if you get to hold of this, you know, it's sort of this this legendary thing that is bordering on having magical powers, not really, but kind of bordering on it. And there's sort of this implication that, you know, if a great leader has this sword, then they'll be unstoppable. So if he gets a hold of it, they're gonna he's gonna conquer everything. So Yushu Len rallies to defend the sword, uh, and collect a whole bunch of of different wandering warriors to help her out, including a mysterious man from her past, played by Donnie Yen. This is in English, this one. It's, it was interesting that the first movie was in Mandarin, but they cast, Ang Lee cast a lot of Asian actors who didn't speak Mandarin, including Michelle Yeoh and Chow Yun-Fat. Mandarin was not their first language, and they weren't all of that all that familiar with it, so they kind of were rusty on it and they got a lot of criticism apparently from actual mandarin speakers of why are you even bothering just film it just do it in the one language and in the language that the actors are comfortable with and and then dub it became the argument and in fact apparently their mandarin was occasionally so bad that in some markets they still did just dub it so here obviously netflix is coming in it's one of their first big movies or certainly their first big action movie it's in English. This is shallower than the first one. Uh, it doesn't have as much going on under the surface, but it is more focused. There's more of a direct cause and effect to the story here. This happens, and so this happens, and so this happens. It's an obvious end goal that they're all working towards as well. It's a little less esoteric. But there are too many stereotypical characters. You know, these wandering warriors who come in and you're like, oh, that's that guy from every RPG I've ever played, you know? Yeah. It's frequently cheesy the dialogue especially but it is fun it's sort of the junk food version of the first movie uh we've we've put in you know a a lot more sugar and and 
cheese and salt and, you know, we've made it the McDonald's version of, of what the first movie was. Michelle Yeoh is typically brilliant. I really like Michelle Yeoh. She, she anchors this really well. Uh, and you still get really excellent fights, uh, even though the effects in this movie are kind of, they're not good at times the visual effects. But the actual physical fights where it's clearly the actors going toe-to-toe with each other, that stuff is still really good. There's a one in particular which takes place on a frozen lake in the middle of the night, which is oh. just spectacular. But sometimes the editing continuity of the fights can be a little bit jarring. Like, it, you, you, like movements, a character will be in one position and then it'll cut to the next shot and they're in a different position. Like, like you're missing... A little bit of continuity in there that that should have been worked through but it is of course being a netflix movie available on netflix i watched scotland pa it is a dark comedy reworking of the shakespeare play macbeth played uh it's directed by billy morissette this is his only directing credit this is set sometime between 1969 and 1974 judging by the richard nixon photo on the wall of the police office but it's set in the small town of Scotland, Pennsylvania, and it is about a fry cook at a burger fast food restaurant named Joe McBeth. McBeth, not Macbeth, McBeth. Hmm. Uh, he's played by James Legros. His wife, Pat, also works there. She's played by Maura Tierney. And they decide that they're going to kill the owner, Norm Duncan, played by James Rebhorn. They take control of the restaurant. They rename it McBeth's. Obviously, McDonald parodies there, but they also then invent the drive-through and become very Ooh. successful as a restaurant. But they are being investigated. This death is being investigated by the wily Lieutenant McDuff, played by Christopher Walken. Ah, this is a cool premise that is stretched far too thin. This is no Ten Things I Hate About You. This this is a is a movie. Seemingly made by people who saw 10 Things I Hate About You and thought it was a lot easier to pull off than it was. There are some decent modernizations here, like the witches who, who give Macbeth the prophecy are just stoned hippies hanging out in an amusement park <laughs> at night. But the script lacks the intelligence that it needs. It's wannabe Tarantino. It's that kind of, of thing. It's not the traditional Shakespeare dialogue. It's, it's very much aping the Tarantino style. The comedy rarely lands as well. There's just a lot here that doesn't work, and there's no urgency to it. It it just feels kind of aimless and plodding. It's like, okay, now we're going to do this now, and now we're going to do that now. There's no no real drive or engine to it. it. It just is lacking forward momentum in a really troubling way. It has great performances, though. Tierney is magnificent as the Lady Macbeth proxy. And you, you get a really good use of Christopher Walken and his particular idiosyncrasies. Legros is playing dumb rather than menacing until later on in the film when he becomes both dumb and, medis- and menacing. And it mostly works well, but it's not a hugely interesting take on the character, though. You know, it it's sort of plays him as being this sort of moron bruiser who's just being manipulated by his wife. It's it's not a, that interesting a take on the Macbeth character. It, this is strange because it's another food-centric Macbeth adaptation. Uh, for example, there was the one that the BBC did with mm. James McAvoy as a sous chef. Well, mm. To be fair to them, this predates that. Yeah. Mm. I mean, Macbeth, the overall plot of the thing 
is, at its core, person is jealous of not getting a raise, in quotation marks. His wife is like, no, you deserve it. And he's sort of pushed towards killing someone. Yeah, he wants to be promoted to manager of the restaurant and someone else is instead and he's made assistant manager. So he kills the owner. (laughs) Um, Which is, I mean, that's a way to go. I guess. I can't really recommend it. Yeah. I watched... What, killing someone or watching that movie? Zinger! We haven't done that in a while. We should have busted it out last week. You were on fire last week, Sean. (laughs) I next watched Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It is a crime comedy film directed by Ethan and Joel Cohen, loosely based on the epic poem The Odyssey by Homer. Uh, It's set in 1930s Mississippi. Three convicts on a chain gang have escaped. They are Ulysses Everett McGill, played by George Clooney, Pete Hogwallop, played by John Turturro, and Delma O'Donnell, played by Tim Blake Nelson. And they're going on a cross-country trip because before he went into prison, Ulysses had robbed a bank and buried the proceeds from that job. But now where he buried it is about to be flooded to make an artificial lake. So they need to get there in the next few days or it will be inaccessible. This is a road trip. It's very episodic. You get that trademark Cohen dialogue. It's very witty. It's very funny. And it's got a lot of that sort of philosophical stuff going on as well. The the Odyssey elements are weaved in brilliantly to to that absurd, humorous effect as, as well as to the philosophical effect. That like the whole riff on on the the sailors being turned into animals, mm. um, like that's done in a in a really funny way here. The, it's character focused too. You got excellent performances by all three of the main cast. Great supporting turns as well. As I said, it's a road trip movie. It's episodic, so you have all these opportunities for these sort of character actors to come in for five minutes and then leave again. Yeah, and so you get like great little turns from. John Goodman, from Charles Durning, from Stephen Root. They all come in and just contribute to this sort of of wacky, twisted take on on 1930s Mississippi that is really fun. And I mean, the Odyssey is episodic in nature, Mm. so it allows for that kind of thing to happen. It kind of hints at something a little broader, that there is maybe some sort of cosmic or religious element to what's happening, that there is some force greater than anything in the movie that is influencing events. There is an implication. They run up against, you know, this one guy that they meet um, and they hang out with for a little while. And he says that he has sold his soul his soul to the devil at a crossroads in, in the middle of the night to for the, the ability to play guitar, which is a reference to Robert a real-life musician who that was the urban legend about him. But um, but then later on, it heavily implies that another character you meet is that devil. So so the, and then there's like hints of divine intervention and things like that. There's just this sort of added layer of of ambiguous weirdness on the top of it that that maybe this is all just a little a little more fantastical than it appears at first glance. But it's ambiguous, you know. You can also watch the movie as just being like straight practical and it all happening for real and in, in, in the real world that we exist in, just a, a sort of bizarre section of it, I suppose. 
and it's brilliantly shot. It looks great. It's all yellows and oranges. It's made to look very autumnal. There's a, there was a lot of like digital color correcting as one of the first movies to use that process in a big way. It sort of captures almost like a it's not sepia toned, but it's kind of like the color version of sepia toned. You know, all of those yellows and oranges. It's it's creating this sort of feeling of like old timey yeah. South. You know. And it's, like, got that dusty look to it. And, it, I mean, it's a Roger Deakins movie. He, he was the cinematographer on it. So there you go. Also, weird fun fact, Mitt Romney, one of Mitt Romney's favourite movies of all time. Hmm. Yeah? I, I don't know if you've ever seen... There was a documentary I watched on Netflix years ago now called Mitt, which was, like, um, behind the scenes on, on his presidential campaign against Obama in 2012. And oh, I like... thought you were talking about it, a documentary about the the... Mit- making mittens in factories or shit. That would be a strange pivot from talking about Mitt Romney. Yeah. Um, zinger. But there is there is actual footage of him in that documentary of him, like, talking to stagehands as he's waiting for his name to be called so he can go out and debate Obama on live television. Him, like, talking to stagehands, like, you ever seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Greatest movie ever. Like, <laughs> like he's really into it, apparently. Oh, did you hear that? Apparently, one of Ted Cruz's favorite movies is Princess Bride. Yep. He's into Star Wars, too, isn't he? Seemingly, like, Mm. at a very surface level. Next, I watched Valentine. It is a slasher film directed by Jamie Blanks. We've covered one of his movies before. He directed Urban Legend. This is based on the Tom Savage novel of the same name. I say based on. Jamie Blanks puts it that it's based on the title of the Tom Savage novel. Um, it really, there's no parallel to what happens in the novel beyond the fact that it is a serial killer movie set near Valentine's Day, but it's about these young women, Paige Prescott, played by Denise Richards, Kate Davies, played by Marley Shelton, Dorothy Wheeler, played by Jessica Capshaw, Lily Voigt, played by Jessica Caulfield, and Shelley Fisher, played by Catherine Heigl, and... There's this killer in a Cupid mask that is running around stalking them and killing them off one by one. And that might be connected to a school dance they had when they were, were back at school where they humiliated a uh, a young boy who asked them to dance. This is a very classic style slasher movie. It sort of blends the post-scream style of slasher movie with that old 80s Friday the 13th prom night attitude. The mystery is muddled, but it's enjoyable. There's a lot of red herrings about the place, but the the outcome is predictable mostly. You got a really interesting sort of undercurrent of predatory men. All of the men in the movie are predatory in some way. And it there is this sort of through line of the movie of the danger of the, the potential dangers for women in the dating scene. You know, you meet a guy, he asks you out. Is he on the up and up, you know? Mm. Is it safe to be aligned with this person that you just met, you know? So it's kind of playing into that. There's a this weird sort of horror sex in the city vibe going on here. Like, it, it really is sort of the, the dating lives of these young women, but what if they were all dating horrible people and one of these horrible people was a serial killer? Like, and which one was it? <laughs> like, it, it is a sort of a, a, a weird, unique take on the genre, a weird blending of genres in a in an interesting way as well. 
I mean, if you told me that Mr. Big was a serial killer in sort of an American psycho vibe, I'd kind of believe you. Uh, the the action stuff here is very well staged, and the acting is better than, than most of these movies' acting tends to be. Jessica Capshaw is excellent in this. She is the best performance in it. And you get a very enjoyable Marley Shelton performance, and you get a very catty Denise Richards performance, which is very fun. And you get a, like a smoothly charming David Boreanaz appearance as Kate's boyfriend. Uh, he works well in this. Yeah, it's a good movie. I liked it. I watched Memento. It is a neo-noir film directed by Christopher Nolan. It's based on the Jonathan Nolan short story Memento Mori. And it follows a man named Leonard Shelby. He's played by Guy Pearce. He has short-term memory loss and he is hunting the murderer of his wife. But... Things are, of course, complicated by the fact that he has short-term memory loss. He cannot make any new memories beyond the attack on his wife, which also injured him. Every 10 minutes or so, any memory he has since that event dissipates, and he's left to figure it out again. This is like following Nolan's first movie, which I talked about a while ago. It is a largely straightforward story that is complicated by the way Nolan presents it. He presents it as a puzzle box. He messes with the chronology, with time, with the audience's perception of time in a way that, I mean, that's clearly his thing, right? Like, yeah, he's obsessed with it. Even in movies where it's totally unnecessary, like Dunkirk, he's like, no, but now it's all taking a place in different time frames. It, it plays mostly backwards in chunks that you sort of start with the end of the story in 10 minute chunks and then you go back to the previous chunk before that, leading up to the beginning of the first chunk, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It is, I think, the only way to satisfyingly portray this idea of this first person of this person with short-term memory loss, because you're sort of—it's the only possible way to even approximate putting the audience in the shoes of the character of yeah. not knowing what's going on and only starting to—I mean. As the movie goes on, we get more information than the character gets at any given time. But it's sort of like you're 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 being asked to work through it. You're being asked to piece the puzzles together, and I think that's the only way to approach this concept and have it work as well as it does here. It's a very cool idea, and it leaves the audience as disoriented as the character is. Uh, Leonard leaves himself like lots of notes. He tattoos instructions on his own body just to sort of orient himself and to help him pursue this guy that he is like he has to record this information because he's going to forget it in 10 minutes like as yeah. he gets closer and closer to this guy who murdered his wife and it and it the audience is is left just as in the dark as he is to start off with and pierce is very good at this sort of confused and haunted man he, he it's a good guy pierce performance you yeah. get some really nicely drawn side characters uh, Joe Pantoliano and Carrie Ann Moss both turn up in some very well-drawn supporting roles. I'm not sure that there's much here, though, in terms of story. When you actually lay it out, what happens in this movie, not much. It's the puzzle that makes it entertaining. If you presented this same film chronologically, it'd be pretty dull when you yeah. think about it. It'd be really dull, actually. It is merely the thought exercise behind trying to reorient the chron chronology in your own head that makes it work as a thriller. Yeah. And I would argue that the twist at the very end is kind of overcomplicated and unnecessary for what the movie has been doing up to that point. 
But it, it really, what it really is, is a showcase for Nolan. It's, I mean, he did following, which he funded himself and shot himself with a friends and family and acquaintances. But this is the first time he really got a decent budget, a film that received general theatrical distribution uh, internationally. It got awards buzz. It really is the opportunity for him to come in and show his chops and say, hey, everyone, look what I can do. Hire me to make your Batman reboot, you know? Yeah. And in that sense, it's very effective. And as I said, you can see so much of Nolan in it. It's available for streaming on Canopy, if you're one of those weirdos who has a Canopy subscription. (laughs) I've yet to met a person in the wild. Hold Um, on, wait. Give me a sec. We don't have Canopy. No. That's all I did, but I don't. Lastly, this week, I watched The Hole. It is a psychological thriller directed by Nick Ham. It is based on the Guy Burt novel After The Hole. It is set at a prestigious British private school, basically real-life Hogwarts. And there are these four students who have been missing for 18 days. And the start of the movie is one of them, Liz Dunn, played by Thora Birch, wanders in from the woods, totally disheveled, emaciated, Manic calls the police on a payphone and just screams. And it's a sort of the investigation happens. And police psychologist Dr. Philippa Horwood, played by M. Beth Davids, comes in to interview Liz and sort of find out what happened. So that's the framing device that we see as we, we begin to understand what happened to these teenagers. It's a very cool premise. It's a little bit like Rashomon, that Japanese film that you see multiple passes at the same event like the same events are told multiple times you get more information you get a different skew on them like you see the first pass which is sort of like if the cw was telling the story like it's all of the the teenagers are very attractive and they all get along and uh it's just the sort of like you you wouldn't be all that surprised to see a version of this storyline on riverdale you know yeah but then you see another pass that gets really twisted and fucked up and (laughs) the truth starts to unravel and it gets so much, it gets so much darker as this goes on so much darker than Riverdale. This is not a CW style story by any sense of the word. It's a tight, tense character drama. It's not really a spoiler to suggest, to tell you where they were. Like that's revealed almost instantaneously. It's in the trailers. They were trapped in an old bunker uh, on the outskirts of the school that is a holdover from back when this old school was uh, housing students during World War II. They had bombing bunkers to put the students in during the German air raids. So those have been abandoned for years, and so they've been trapped in there for 18 days because they went in and then the door wouldn't open again on their way out. The question is, why are they trapped in there? Are they trapped in there because of some outside force? Are they trapped in because of some pure accident? That's what's trying to be uncovered here. Mm. And we see the way that they sort of bounce off of each other and the way that they sort of turn on each other as they're stuck in there for 18 days. The sort of the, the general petty squabbles of teenagers and that kind of thing, the selfishness of teenagers, that starts to come out. As I said, you see the CW version first, which is presenting them all in their best light possible. 
and then you start seeing the real like twisted Lord of the Flies version of it, how it really went. Great performances by all of the four teenagers trapped down there, but Desmond Harrington, Lawrence Fox, and a very young Kira Knightley, who looks exactly the same at the age of 15 as she does now. <laughs> you, you figure out where the movie is going at about the halfway point. You're supposed to. At a certain point, you realize, as does the psychologist, what has happened. And it's mostly about just figuring out the details from that point onwards. You're seeing a slowly unfolding tragedy. These unraveling characters that you, you know that bad things are coming. And, and that's part of the dread of it. The, the bunker itself is a great set. That's where most of the movie spends its time, is in these flashbacks in this dimly lit bunker. It's very cool. But uh, Nick Ham is a little bit in danger of sometimes directing things a little too much like a early 2000s music video. There's a lot yeah. of like, whip pans and other stylizations that have not aged well at all. He's much better when he trusts his cinematography to do the work. Uh, and it doesn't overwhelm the, the film, but it was enough that I noticed it and cringed when it happened. It's very much that early 2000s yeah. thing. But I really, really enjoyed this movie. It's not available for streaming anywhere in Australia that I can tell, but I really, really liked it. Very twisted and unique. Anyways, that's me done for the week. So what about you guys? What have you been watching? All right. So we have watched a... I don't know how to put this. We're watching Shrek this week, so we decided to do something quite stupid and ill-advised. We watched a recorded version of the Shrek musical. The Broadway yeah. musical. It is odd, mm -hmm. to say the least. I'll be getting to that next week, you know. The story of the Shrek musical is, you know, the basic story of Shrek. We're all familiar with that. But they decide to give him a backstory and a family history, which I find unnecessary. A lot of the people singing are doing that Broadway thing, you know? It's the, the overdoing it. Particularly the guy who plays Shrek. Like, he seems confused as to whether or not he wants to do a accent or not, and he goes a little too nasally at times. Fiona is pretty good in it, I'd have to say. And the musical really does start picking up at around the point where they get to the Dragon's Keep. Yeah. Uh, where we first get, where we get Dragon's song in it. Does Dragon actually have a song? Yes. Oh, God. But it's like, but it's sung by three different pe three different ladies in that sort of like real sassy style that sort of like almost the cabaret kind of vibe yeah. and it really really fits it's the first time in the musical they actually try something different mm. and it's the first time that harley was like huh all right this is a good song and then for the five songs after that it's like okay they're getting somewhere they're doing something interesting and then it starts to peter out by yeah. the end. Like, the most annoying parts are the parts where it's... So they give the fairy tale creatures two songs, and they're the most annoying parts of it. For me, it's because the performance of Pinocchio in the musical is irritating at the least and frightening at the most because of the way that the prosthetics and the makeup sit on this person's face. Uh, and look, it's not as good as the original movie. Just yeah, gotta the, get that out of the way. Yeah, the song where we're introduced to a dragon is called Donkey Pot Pie, and a few of the ones after that are quite good. 
there's Who I Be, which is your classic I Want song, but it works decently well here. You get the Ballad of Farquaad, as well as What's Up Duloc for uh, Lord Farquaad. Yeah. The guy who's playing Lord Farquaad is basically walking around on his knees most of the time, and that yeah. must kill, because yeah, he, he has to make sure he's moving at the same pace yeah. as a person would walk. 30 years from now, he's going to have, like, real regrets when he has all of those joint problems. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. it's not going to go well for him. Then you get some st- songs coming up near the end. One called Build a Wall. Oh, does Donald Trump have a guest cameo in this movie? No, no, no. But no. Th- this, is a, this is when Shrek is feeling betrayed and angry. But a lot of it feels a little, I don't know, scarily prescient. Doesn't age well. No. Let's just say it. It it age it ages like a fine milk. I'd have to say it's it's not a very good musical. The part that particularly bothers me is when they get the lines from the film. You know the really popular yeah. ones. And and these actors, I understand the urge to make the character your own, but with lines that are so funny in the original and lines that stick out so much, kind of milk them more. They 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 don't give them the time to land that they need. They sort of just say them, move on. I had the opposite problem with it. It felt like they said the lines, but the pacing of the lines were all wrong. Like... Which kind of removed some of the humour of Well, yeah, because, like, we've watched that first movie over and over and over. Like, I haven't seen the first Shrek in probably 12 or 13 years, but watching it for this episode i was just astonished like i remembered the line readings i knew what it was going to sound like before i heard it you know yeah like it's so it's baked into your bones exactly so maybe i i wonder if it's a little unfair but to to judge some of their line readings like maybe like especially what jean is saying about the pacing of it like we're just so familiar with that first i know that but they don't try that that's the thing uh, they don't try uh, to... I, I don't think you can question, like, the effort put in. Like, the stagecraft of this play, except They do a quick change near the end. Like, for, for you know, the Fiona changing into Ogre Fiona yeah. at, the, at the wedding. Like, the, they do a quick change there. It is, like, a minute and a half that they have to paint the lady green, put on the ears... And make her look bigger. And it's seamless. Like, the stagecraft and the energy put in by the, the by the performers, you can't question it. Because you know that they're putting everything into it. You have to. It's theatre. But, again, because we're so used to the original movie, and because this play seems to be more focused towards entertaining children... It doesn't really click with us. They they do bring in I'm a Believer at the end. Yes, but they do not do All-Star. No. Uh, but the cast gets to have a lot of good fun with I'm a Believer at the end. I, I always like seeing that at the end of musicals, when the cast can just, you know, have a good bit of fun. Yeah, they don't do All-Star, which is a disappointment. Because if they, they don't do All-Star, and they don't do Robin oh. Hood. Robin Hood's not in there, which is my biggest disappointment well it's an easy cut like you could even just in the movie you could cut that scene so easily no i know that but it's like 
he's got a diegetic song that he sings already. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it, it, like, like, you can easily just put that in there, you know? It's a built-in musical number. Why wouldn't you just use it? They, they do have a reference, like, around the middle to Cats, like, in the music. They do. I'm going to uh. send it to you after. It is... So they're making r- references to better musicals. <laughs> oh, yeah, they do. Uh, there's a reference to Wicked at one point in the musical. I'm not going to tell you what it is, because they give it to a very interesting char- char- character to do. That one works. That one really works. That one works. Worked. That one was earned. That was funny. You can find it on YouTube. You, like, you can buy it and rent yeah. it on YouTube. And I'm assuming other places, like... Lawson, you got you're going to watch it because it's a part yeah, of. Yeah, I got it on Blu-ray in my Shrek box set. Includes four Shrek movies: The Shrek Musical, Puss in Boots, and five episodes of the Netflix Puss in Boots TV show. Oh fuck! The cover assures me. Oh, and ten short films as well. Shrek short films, including like Shrek the Halls, stuff like that. Cool. The cover. Excellent. The cover assures me that I will have over seventeen hours of fun. Jesus, that's a lot of Shrek. We also watched a film that Lawson recommended to us. We watched Emma. Emma, dot, because it is a period piece. Like, seriously, that's why it's there. The director's like, it's a period piece, (laughs) so I put a period after the title. It's like... Excellent. Lawson's already talked about this, and you quite liked it, didn't you? I did. And I thought especially, like, given how well you guys reacted to the personal history of David Copperfield when we saw it last year that this might be up your alley. So I've got a story to tell you, Lawson. Last night, I said, Harley, I want to watch Emma because the best of 2020 is next week. I want to get through the list of movies that Lawson has recommended us. We've still got to watch Becky and the Wretched, and but we'll Harley get around to Harley has to, to watch that. The Gentleman. And Harley has to watch The Gentleman. So I was like, I would like to watch Emma tonight. And this was after we watched Shrek. So Holly was like, I don't really want to watch Emma. It doesn't really interest me. Snap cut to near the end of the film where it seems like a friendship is going to break apart and Holly's like, no, come on, no. I know my audience, you guys. Like, come on, when I recommend you movies strongly, it means that I think you'll like them. I, I knew I was going to like it because of the way you described it. It was just fun and really exciting to watch harley's sort of character arc for this movie how he goes from not being terribly interested to finally understanding who every one of the characters are and the relationships to each other to being really invested in the emotions of certain characters i I just feel like when i watch some of these old period some of these period pieces i need to sort of like have like a serial killer yeah, board. serial killer board to understand the interpersonal relationships of stuff. And they've all got names like Mr. Willoughby. <laughs> yeah. And it's and it's like they're all the same fucking person. When I understand the relationships and where people are at, that's when I can start having fun with it. Yeah. And I had fun with this one. I particularly like Knightley. He's a character I quite like in this one because he has that interplay with Emma. Emma played by Anya Taylor-Joy, where they're sort of like... Because Emma really likes setting people together. She likes matchmaking. And Knightley wants to show her that it's kind of a dick move. to get. In- They've got that yeah. sort of... When you've known someone for a long time, when you're childhood friends, you know the pressure points to, like, 
annoy the shit out of them. Like, you know exactly the things to say, and these two have that energy. They know exactly what to say to piss each other off. But I, they I, challenge I, each other. I, I, I like that sort of relationship, and Jane Austen is quite talented at making those relationships. She did so with did so in with the character of Mr. Darcy. In Pride and Prejudice. In Pride and Prejudice. It's like she she's very interested in the give and take and the back and forth um, that a lot of other writers from the time might not have been. The, the, the priest in this one? The... Elton. Elton. Oh, what a slimy bastard. <laughs> he he weirded me out so much. Like that scene where he's proposing to her in the carriage. Mm. I was like, Emma, girl, this is unsafe. When he got out of the when he got out of the carriage, I turned to Holly and I said, You know, after this he goes missing for six weeks. <laughs> and then Holly was like, Are you fucking serious? Like, I, I actually really got into this one. Mm. Um, it was really cool. I don't know if it'll make my top ten. I loved Bill... We, we loved Bill Nighy in this, though. Mm. Yes. He's great. If you just grabbed him as he is, brilliant, friggin' paranoid, hypochondriac that he is, and you put him into a room with Hugh Laurie and Peter Capaldi's characters from Personal History of David Copperfield, they would get along like a house on fire. Or maybe he would, like, try to avoid them by walking to the other side of the room, but find out that that side of the room has a window that lets a draft in. Yeah. I loved the part where they're at the dinner party, and Elton brings up the possible chance of snow, and, and he's like, your mother died in the snow. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, dude. And like, he's got to go home immediately. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. It's I like, that. there might be snow. We need to leave. <laughs> we need to go now. There's a scene where Anya Taylor-Joy and Johnny Flynn, who plays Mr. Knightley, dance. And man, you can like feel <laughs> the energy coming off of them. And I very rarely see that in these period pieces. Like, for it to be that palpable is a, really a credit to them. It feels yeah. very modern, the movie does. Yeah! yeah. In, in in not... A, it feels modern in a way that's not overbearing. It's not the, it's not the old merchant ivory, everyone's in a corset, oh, let's go to a tea party, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's a little yeah. more, like, like it, punk than that. Yeah, but it's yeah. not... It's also not trying to be um something that's got deliberately modern stuff in it it's the performances are very emotionally honest uh and that gives it that modern feeling it threads the needle beautifully yeah and also great musical performances from the cast members all of them yeah absolutely not not pre-recorded not done in a studio done on set hmm Now we have our short segment, Save Me From Smallville, where we talk about the scary shit that appears in the Superman origin story, Smallville. We've finally finished season four. This has been a rough one for me. Not very many things that are legitimately creepy or have legitimately freaked me out. Or or have been shocking. Yeah, there is some, but not as much. It's just repeating a lot of the same things. Yeah. And it's like, there's only so many times we can be like, hey, Lex Luthor has a, had a bit of a shit life. Yeah, and season four, episode 21, provides a hard pivot that was absolutely necessary nearing the end of the season. So, one of the students that 
Clark, Lana, and Chloe go to high school with has recreated the hallways of the high school in an abandoned warehouse and has kidnapped several of the of the students so he can keep that last day of high school going forever. Okay. He has the power he has the power to physically turn people into a really hard wax-like substance. It looks super messed up because they've actually made uh, wax sculptures of the actors, but they're all just off and all just wrong enough to really make it creepy. He, he is collecting these people because he wants to preserve them the way they are. And he says stuff like, if you go out into the world, nothing is going to be better. You're going to be miserable. That kind of thing. He's got, he's, he's this kind of weird, freaky person who's got the personality of a wet towel on the floor of a gym bathroom. Like, that's kind of what his personality is. Like, but he's so weird. His, his whole mindset is that it'll never get better than this. Yeah. So he wants to keep it as is. One of the people who were trying to escape, he turned into wax, then removed their head. He turned them into and then wax, yeah. Turned them into wax, took their head off, and threw it down the stairs. Uh, so we can see it bust open. And you see all this, like, red sort of crystalline wax come out. Mm. of the smashed up head which was so so off-putting it was uh, there's also more brutal than we expected yeah and i think we also sent a video to you of like the ultimately creepiest thing that happens in the episode uh sort of like he gets turned into wax and gets all smashed up but then the p- part of his face it's like the upper portion of his face is remaining and his eye just blinks but then his pupil dilates as he just, like, dies. Which was, like, way too much, but I appreciate that they did it. Mm. So, yeah, we're going to be getting into Season 5 soon, which I'm excited for. Season 4 has been off to me because this whole plotline with the witch possessing Lana removes her agency yeah, in a lot of ways, and I like it when Lana gets involved in the main plot by her decision, not the fact she has to be there. Oh, yeah, and Alison Mack is still here. So, you know. Yeah. That's that's just, like, a constant thing in the back of my head. Like, whenever she's talking to someone about a relationship or someone being coercive, I'm just sitting here thinking, man, this is like a whole fridge of milk that has gone off. This has aged terribly. Mm. And, and Lex has turned a corner that yeah, he's he can't gone. go back, which is he's sad gonna, to me. He's going to pretend he hasn't turned that corner. But he's got a hope beyond hope that he's changed. hasn't, but he has changed for the worse. Yeah. But so for our betterment. So now we're going to play for you the trailer to DreamWorks Shrek. Princess, where are you? It's very spooky in here. I'm playing no games. Well, at least we know where the princess is. But where's the dragon? <laughs> DreamWorks Pictures invites you to a land of fairy tales. Hey! Oh, no, 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 no. Dead girl off the table. Where are we supposed to put her? The bed's taken. What? Where an unlikely hero... Ah! You definitely need some Tic Tacs or something, because your breath stinks! ...rescues a fair princess... You didn't slay the dragon? It's on my to-do list. ...from a nasty villain... Eat me! 
back with the help of his trusty companion. This is gonna be fun. We can stay up late, swapping manly stories, and in the morning, I'm making waffles. This summer, one name spells action. You're not exactly what I expected. One name spells adventure. How about him? Before this is over, I'm gonna need a whole lot of serious therapy. One name. Don't look down. Trick, I'm looking down. Spells romance. It's no way to behave in front of a princess. Uh. Oh, wow. She's as nasty as you are. Come on! There's an arrow in your butt. Oh. Oh. And that name is... Shrek. Shrek. Thank you very much. I'm here till Thursday. Mike Myers, Eddie Murphy, Cameron Diaz, John Lithgow. You love this woman, don't you? Yes. You want to hold her? Yes. Please. Uh, yes. Then you got to, got to tie a little peasant Shrek. Wow. Let's do that again. No, no. That was the theatrical trailer for Shrek. It is an animated family comedy and it is set in a fantasy world where characters and creatures from classic fairy tales coexist with medieval humans. This cohabitation is sometimes strained, particularly in the Kingdom of Duloc, where cruel ruling prince Lord Farquaad, played by John Lithgow, has ordered his fairy tale subjects rounded up and removed from public view, dumping them to fend for themselves in a swamp on the outskirts of his kingdom. This happens to be the home of Shrek, Mike Myers, an ogre who strongly values his isolation and privacy, and is thoroughly displeased with the thousands of magical refugees now camped out on his front lawn. Together with a talking donkey he recently met, creatively named Donkey and voiced by Eddie Murphy, Shrek travels to Duloc to demand Farquaad resolve the situation. Seeing an opportunity to turn the situation to his advantage, Farquaad offers a deal. See, he wants to be king, but to do so he must marry a princess, and, as in all fairy tale worlds, such rare women are hidden away in faraway castles that one must rescue them from as a quest to prove devotion and valour. He has his heart set on Princess Fiona, played by Cameron Diaz, who is being held prisoner in an isolated castle surrounded by a moat of lava and guarded by a fire-breathing dragon. This is problematic for Farquaad, who, in addition to being so short that defeating a gigantic dragon would be nearly impossible, he possesses neither devotion or valour as well. So he makes Shrek an offer he can't refuse. Rescue the princess and return her to Duloc for him to wed, and Shrek will get his swamp back. But, as in all good fairy tales, things don't go as planned. So, pause just for a second. The way that you phrased certain things in that synopsis was hilarious to me. Like what? Calling the fairy tale creatures refugees. Like, the way that you synopsized the film took it so seriously. This is a comedy. This is a comedy children's film, yeah. folks. The cohabitation is somewhat strained. Everything you're saying is absolutely <laughs> true, but the way you talked about it, it's like, what is this? An Oliver Stone film? <laughs> like the way you synopsized it was exactly the same level of seriousness as you did JFK or Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, and that was just hilarious to me. 
So are we ready to give a 30 second <laughs> yeah. thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let me just cue you up here. All right, Jean, you ready for your 30 yes, second brief thoughts on this? Three, two, one, go. I really love this movie and I've loved it for a very long time. It is just charming. It's one of those childhood movies that I would watch and I I know practically every line of the film. I notice some things about certain jokes differently every time I see it, and that's why it is such a classic and people go back to it. The meme potential is just godlike. The only other movie... Yeah. Alright. Didn't get to finish that thought. Damn. What was what's the only other movie you'd compare it to in terms of meme potential? Probably the prequels, you know? The Star Wars prequels. Yeah, yeah I suppose. Like You're in ready? terms of just like how certain lines have just seeped into the fandom. Sure. You ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. Somebody once told me <laughs> the world was gonna roll me. I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. She was looking kinda dumb with a finger and a thumb in the shape of a nail on her forehead. Well, the years start coming and don't stop coming. Fred through the ground and Fred. Hmm. Jesus. I'm not sure what that lyric is. But anyway, I love Shrek. <laughs> it is totally my type of movie. I adore everything about it. I particularly love the performances of. You spent the first 20 seconds reciting All Star incorrectly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, that's just the kind of energy I want to bring into this deep Jesus. <laughs> Alright, you got me queued up. Hold on. Sorry, I was too focused on the bullshit Harley was doing. <laughs> hey. And then... No, come on, don't... Those in glass houses cannot throw stones, Sean. That was a very you thing to do, what Harley just did there. And then Lawson just starts reciting, I'm a believer. <laughs> Go. I watched this movie a lot when I was a kid. It's was like on rotation. It was one of the first movies I saw in cinemas. It was one of the first VHSs that I bought with my own money, my pocket money. I loved it. And I haven't gone back to it in a long time. And I was happy to see that it held up as well as it did. It still is, I think, a very smart subversion of fairy tales. And I noticed a lot of things as an adult that I didn't as a child. I did forget to say that this is actually based on a picture book. Yes. Yeah. By a guy named William Steed. Are either of you familiar with it at all? I'm aware no. with the fact that this is based off of a book, but it is a loose. Very loose. My understand it like the, the it doesn't have the Farquad character in it, my understanding is. Shrek is kind of a coward in the book. Like gets frightened by a side of himself in the mirror. Like, stuff like that. This seems to be a very vague adaptation, if adaptation you can even call it. There is an ogre, a green ogre named Shrek, and that's about Mm. the extent of it, I think. But this also, we have mentioned it previously when we've done DreamWorks movies, that this is also kind of the beginning of the sort of punk, pop culture-heavy DreamWorks era. Yeah. That this is the sort of first one of those, it's the one that did it best, and... It marks the transition of DreamWorks as chasing the coattails of Disney with stuff like Road to El Dorado and Prince of Egypt and Ants to finding a formula that really worked for them, but that that then ultimately they beat that horse till it died. (laughs) 
and then continued to keep beating it. Well, then they tried to transition over to like the How to Train Your Dragon and, and stuff like that, which they did okay with. But, but yes, financially, it did not work out for them. They ended up becoming a subsidiary. They don't distribute their own movies anymore. So we've also talked a little bit about the kind of troubled production that this had, that this was sort of seen as a punishment to be assigned to this movie, that you wanted to be working on Prince of Egypt or The Road to El Dorado. And if you were, if they weren't happy with your work, you'd get sent to Shrek instead, because everyone thought it was a train wreck. They referred to working on it as being in the gulag. Hold on. So if you weren't good enough to be working on Prince of Egypt, you were sent to Road to El Dorado, which had a troubled... Hi- no, I think you were just sent to Shrek. Well, here's the other thing, too. I'm sure it was much harder work on Shrek. This is full 3D animation, yeah. ultimately, which requires a hell of a lot more work. And they had other problems as well. The vast majority of the audio for Shrek was recorded by Chris Farley. Yeah, yeah. Before he died without completing it. So all of a sudden, they're without an actor. So they went to Mike Myers. And Mike Myers, who was a friend of Chris Farley said that he would only do it if they did a, a, a rewrite to, to write it to his voice. He didn't want to do an impression of his recently passed friend. Mm, yeah. So that then they did a complete rewrite of the Shrek character. And Janine Garofalo had been cast as Princess Fiona. And at the same time that they recast with Mike Myers, they, they fired her. For what reason? Who knows? They... Maybe they thought that someone else would work better. She wouldn't work well with Myers. That that vibe wouldn't work well with the way that they were changing Shrek. I don't know. At least the Garofalo cut. Garofalo says she was never informed why she was fired. I have the direct quote from her. I was never told why I was fired. I assume because I sound like a man sometimes. I don't know why. Nobody told me. But, you know, the movie didn't do anything, so who cares? <laughs> But, I mean, this was a phenomenal success. Absolutely. Like, an extraordinary success for DreamWorks. It won the Best Animated Feature Oscar. It made an incredible amount of money. It made, let me check here, almost $500 million, which for a non-Disney animated film at that point was nigh unheard of, especially coming off of, you know, The Road to El Dorado, which had lost money only the year before that it had it had not made a profit, it seems like, I mean, it's is it any wonder that DreamWorks decided, okay, so we're going to do this now? Every movie is going to be a version of Shrek. And now we're going to make Shark Tale, and we're going to make Madagascar, and we're going to make Kung Fu Panda, and these are all things that are very much in the lineage, over the hedge, you know? Monsters vs. Aliens, Megamind, you know? It, it's not really until How to Train Your Dragon that they even try to go back to something like the sort of more traditional fantasy storytelling of Road to El Dorado or Prince of Egypt, you know? And another thing, like, let's just get the the behind-the-scenes goss out of the way at the start here. We've talked before about Jeffrey Katzenberg's fractious relationship with Disney, that he was at Disney, that he ran a lot of the, the famous Disney Renaissance movies. He left very acrimoniously. He was kind of passed over for promotion, had a feud with a guy named Michael Eisner, who ended up running the running the company. Left. I mean, there's all the stuff about like he started DreamWorks partly to get back at at Disney. That's the story anyway, and that he would just do kind of petty things. Like the urban legend is that the last meeting he took as a Disney executive was the pitch for Bugs Life. 
And so he immediately greenlit ants when he started DreamWorks. Like, that's probably not true, but that's the urban legend, and I like to think that it's true. <laughs> but then there's stuff like um, like when the DVD, the DVD and video for Shrek were released, uh, they intentionally released it on a Friday instead of a Tuesday. Most home video releases were Tuesdays. They released it on the Friday because that was the day that Monsters, Inc. came out in cinemas. <laughs> and it is the worst kept secret, like it's been reported in multiple trades, in multiple newspapers, that Lord Farquaad is based on Katzenberg's nemesis, Michael Eisner, from Disney. <laughs> like, And then you've got all the, like, the... It's a small world after all parodies, the turnstiles, the way the Duloc is sort of this, you know, the Magic Kingdom, like the, the, the Disney castle thing. The fact that Lord Farquaad, well, his name, Farquaad. Yeah. And then it's like, you know, the, the, the singing with the birds and the bird is exploding. Like, there are just so <laughs> many, like, like Katzenberg sneaking up behind Disney and just, like, shiving it in the back viciously as hard as he can. <laughs> like, he seems so bitter in, yeah. in, the, in, the, in the cattiest sort of way <laughs> that mm. is all through this movie. And I, I kind of love it, but at the same time, I'm kind of like, you're a grown man, right? Yeah. Like, you're a person with millions of dollars who chose to leave that company of your own free, free will because, allegedly, because you didn't get a great big promotion that you wanted, like... Come on, guy. <laughs> you'd think, without knowing the backstory, that he killed his yeah. dog or something. Yeah, you'd think that Michael Eisner ran over his dog or something and, like, murdered his family in front of him, like but some no. proper <laughs> John Wick bullshit. It, what it was was, like, this, this real-life succession bullshit, machinations behind the scenes, boardroom meetings and things. And then, of course, like, Michael Eisner ended up getting ousted in the early 2000s and... and Part of the reason that he was ousted was that D DreamWorks had now started to outperform them. Like that's allegedly part of the reason. There's a whole uh, there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on there, but part of it was that Disney was starting to falter. And, and a so, lot of it is also like, oh boo hoo! Incredibly wealthy man didn't get the job he wants, so he just made his own. Like, come on, where is that limited series? You know, that's like <laughs> under that script is under lock and key in like a Disney lawyer's office somewhere they broke in in the dead of night and stole it and <laughs> they're never letting that see the light of the day that's in the vault with uh with that racist movie that they won't show anymore yeah it's in the vault with <laughs> song of the south song of the south and the still warm corpse of walt disney yeah it's it's right there they it's it's right between song of the south and the cryogenically frozen head of walt disney <laughs> You don't want to go into that vault. He screams quite loudly. He screams so much. So let's talk a bit about this film itself. Mm. Let's talk about the story a bit. Well, actually, you know, we've, we've already said that it's a big part of our childhood, and I, I think maybe we should expand on that. I mean, how, how heavily involved was this movie in your childhood? Like, what's your experience with it? What's your origin story with Shrek? As a kid, you, you really don't think about stuff that's coming out and stuff like that you just watch it and this is always one that i've enjoyed it's 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 always been there in my recollection you know and i don't know something about it just always appealed to me it might be the way it 
sort of plays with the fairy tale as a concept itself. It might be the silly jokes. It might be some of the more witty ones. Or it may just be how nice I found the animation. Mm. Like, I really can't track my initial response to Shrek because it was so long ago. And I mean, as a franchise, it's always been around us. We've played Shrek games. On on the PlayStation 2, there's a friggin' Shrek Team Racing or whatever the hell it's called. Mm-hmm. There's Shrek 2 as well. The Shrek 2 game's pretty good. Yeah. The Shrek 2 game is good, though. But we, we played this Shrek Racing game with a family member, and it's like, God, this sucks. And we all sat down, and it's like, this game sucks, but we're going to play it anyway, because it's Shrek. Mm. Yeah, there's something about Shrek. Like, I've enjoyed every one of the Shrek movies. I enjoyed Puss in Boots, even though I can barely remember it. It's always been around. My current relationship with Shrek is more on the meme potential. This has become such a gold mine mm. for those sorts of memes. There's one in particular that I really enjoy. It's often posted in response to a lot of casting of either video game or superhero characters and stuff, where some of the more toxic and gatekeepy fans talk about body proportion. And this is basically a play on the... Oh, this is precious. <laughs> the ogre has fallen in love with the princess. Oh, good lord. But it's... Oh, look, the weave has fallen in love with the drawing. <laughs> I, I quite like that one. I also just really like a lot of the... Really, the franchise is a goldmine hmm. for it. Not just the first movie. There's the whole idea of Shrek as a being. Uh, there's this video I've seen online that I can't help but laugh at. It's like one of those dog obstacle courses. Yeah. But, like, Shrek has been put in place of the little dog. So you just see this little Shrek running through this obstacle course. And, man, he is booking it. We showed it to Dad and he loved it. So, (laughs) people really have fastened themselves to the Shrek franchise. Yeah, I mean, Shrek Retold. Shrek Retold's the best example of that. These people love the movie so much, so very much, that they all came together, filmed their own parts of Shrek in their own particular way, and... Cut it together. Just cut it together, had a good time doing it. Released it for free. Yeah, it's... Shrek, in a way, is a cultural movement. Shrek is love. Shrek is life. Yeah. My history of the film is... It was one of the first films I can recall seeing in cinemas. It's one of the first films that I can recall... I sort of link it weirdly with How the Grinch Stole Christmas in my head, because I sort of saw them close to around the same time. They came out on VHS around the same time. There was a similar sense of humour. Yeah, I remember... You know, the, the the dilemma that my, you know, childlike brain had of, well, if I save up, I, I get my pocket money, and with my pocket money, I can I can afford to rent an extra, because we got to rent one VHS from the video store each week. Mm. Well, with my pocket money, I can pay for an extra rental, and then I can rent both of them every week and watch them every weekend. But if I save up money, then that's going to take me weeks and weeks to save up money to get the VHS, and then I'm only going to be able to get one of them, and what am I going to do with the other one, you know? So that was, you know, a weird hurdle for my childhood brain to <laughs> try and work out. It, it taught you 
a lesson about saving money and the facts of capitalism that you will never get all of the things that you want. It was a very enlightening moment brought on by Shrek. It was. It created this nihilistic Wunderkind that we see before us. <laughs> but I, I watched it so, so much. I It was the first DVD that I ever saw, you know, when I went to stay with my aunt and uncle for a, a day or two a weekend or something, they had a DVD player and I didn't. So we went to the video store and it's like, you can rent a DVD. I'll rent Shrek. I've got it at home, but I'll rent Shrek because I want to see the DVD. Because, ooh, there's special features on the DVD. I didn't even know what that meant at the time, but... But they're special. You know? They're special, and they're features! I remember, like, playing around with all the DVD features that you could, like, highlight a certain section of the screen and zoom in. (laughs) So I, like, went to that that scene where uh, the dragon kisses Shrek on the butt and, like, paused and zoomed in (laughs) on Shrek's butt. God, you were the internet before the internet, my dude. So that is like the weirdest thing I've ever heard you do. Yeah, the entire that's screen odd. was was Shrek's butt, and I got in trouble for it. I have like... to say, Lawson. I have to say, and I God bless you for telling us this. That is the one of the weirdest things I've ever heard. I've never done anything as weird as that. Oh come on, John. Never in my life have I done anything as weird as that. So you were one of those Shrek is love, Shrek is life. <laughs> I was just fascinated with the DVD features. <laughs> yeah, but out of all of the scenes that you could do, Shrek's bare ass is not the... You don't look at the details of the cookie-esque animation on Gingerbread Man. I wasn't thinking about it. I was a child. You were a weird child. (laughs) I would would have been, what, seven, eight, nine, somewhere around there? (laughs) But, um, like, I watched this so much, and I watched the second one so much. I had the movie novelizations for both of them, and I read those movie novelizations. (laughs) How how much do those add? Pardon? The novelizations, how much do they add? Well, these are like the junior novelizations. The 120 pages one is basically just the, the movie. They're not the as thick as The Stand. It's not... No. This ain't Lord of the Rings, my dude. Like, I watched them, and then, like, by the time Shrek the Third came out, I was a teenager. I was trying to pretend that I was too grown up to watch animated movies. So I only saw Shrek the Third once or twice. I only saw Shrek Forever After once when it was in cinemas. I haven't seen it since. I'll be getting into that next week. And I never saw Puss in Boots. So I, I think probably the last time I saw... Shrek 1 was probably in like 2008, 2009, somewhere thereabouts. I haven't seen it in a long time. This is the first time I've seen it like as an adult, as someone with, a with you know, the added context of, of knowing more about film and, and a lot of what the references are and seeing the jokes that are pitched to adults and stuff like that. So it was interesting watching it again this time, but it was also interesting that I watched it just so much that I could recall... Everything, every yeah. line, I, I I knew it. It was like hearing a song that you have listened to on repeat. Like you just know what it's supposed to sound like. Mm. You know what the line readings are before you hear it. You know that now that you're going to hear a bird chirp, you know how the bird's going to chirp. It's like that 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 sensory information is like imprinted on my brain. Yeah, you know the code. Yeah, 
and that was really fact. Like that's something that happened to me when I watched, you know, the Star Wars prequels as well. But but more so here, and more so like we'd like how the Grinch stole Christmas. It was just something that that was a, was such a big part of of my childhood. And you know, part of it also was that that this is one of my mum's favorite movies. My mum doesn't really like kids movies as a general rule, and so. You know, I, I have fond memories of this because it was something that we would watch together and, and she would actually like. And she would laugh at things that I didn't understand why she was laughing at, but I understand now, you know? Did she cotton on to the Farquaad thing? I don't know. I haven't, I haven't asked her. It's certainly not something that she would have brought up to me when I was a child. I'd say, hey, Lawson, do you know what this means? Do you know what it means when Shrek asks if he's compensating for something? Mm. Yeah, it was, and I am a few years older than you guys as well. I don't know yeah. if you guys saw this in the cinemas, but no, no, yeah, no. we might have. I just simply don't recall. I was like there from ground zero, you know. I, w- I was there from the very beginning. I was into Shrek before it was a meme. Lawson Chernobyl like stared directly into it. <laughs> he stared directly at Shrek's ass. Let's talk about Shrek himself. He's a Pretty complex character, yeah, he is. to be completely honest. There's a lot to him that he doesn't enjoy scaring people. He gets a little of enjoyment scaring those people at the beginning, but mostly, he just wants to live quietly in a swamp. Mm-hmm. And he has everything he needs there. Exactly, he's got a good life there. It's just, he's lonely. There is still something unfulfilled in him. Yeah. He's reading the story of Princess Fiona at the beginning. He does, of course, take out the last page and use it to wipe himself, but (laughs) it shows that he lives in a world where these things are reality, and he lives in a world where this stuff happens to other people, not to him. He still thinks it's bullshit. He is a fairy tale creature separate from the rest of the fairy tale community still. Yeah. And that loneliness, if he didn't come across Donkey, if... All of these fairy tale refugees didn't come to his land. He may have just stayed in his swamp chasing people out forever. Mm. Not not seeking adventure. Adventure comes to him, ultimately. And that's that line where when he meets Donkey I'm an ogre. You know, grab your torch and pitchforks. Doesn't that bother you? Nope. Really? Really, really. It shows that he hasn't been awarded kindness before. And he is certainly much more vulnerable than he likes to yeah. display. He's lonelier than he would like to pretend that he is. Yeah. Like, there's the scene where the they've just rescued Princess Fiona, and she's gone into the cave to sleep, and they're laying there, looking at the stars and at the moon, and Shrek, like, actually gets into a deep conversation with Donkey. Hey, what's your problem, Shrek? What you got against the whole world anyway? Huh? Look, I'm not the one with the problem, okay? It's the world that seems to have a problem with me. People take one look at me and go, Ah, help! Run! A big, stupid, ugly ogre. (sighs) They judge me before they even know me. That's why I'm better off alone. He can't put himself out there because people will be afraid of him and disgusted by him and hate him. So he just doesn't anymore. Yeah. And over the course of the movie, he finds love, he finds friendship, and that serves to soften his character the rest of the franchise. Mm. Like, even in Shrek Forever After, the Shrek Point Paradox, <laughs> he's going through sort of like an emotional crisis where he he feels like he's not the ogre he should be. Mm-hmm. 
in a lot of ways. So when in this Shrek Point universe, <laughs> there's a whole band of ogres being ogres. Yeah. He doesn't know how to live that way because he's very much not a warrior. Mm. He's not he's not the fantasy idea mm. of an ogre. So he doesn't even fit as an ogre ultimately. I mean, this subversion of the traditional view of ogres as sort of scary monsters. I mean, this is in keeping with a lot of what the movie is doing, that it is subverting the traditional fairy tale. It is taking the archetypes, the stereotypes, you know, the, the, the prince who, you know, rules over the land and is always charming and, and you know, heroic, the the princess in, in the tower and all, all of that stuff right down to, you know, the, the, the almost... <laughs> gleeful cruelty with which it treats some of the traditional fairy tale characters yeah. like mm. when we first see you know all of them being rounded up the three bears are in cages and the little one's crying the little one cries <laughs> this kid is so small and then later in the swamp we see the the daddy bear and the baby bear and they're sitting there together and the daddy bear's comforting the baby bear and then when we cut to the the legendary Farquad masturbation <laughs> masturbation scene. <laughs> um I don't know if it's that explicit, but right, what, he whatever. definitely has an erection. Yeah, when he's watching Fiona on the magic mirror and, and drinking a martini. Like the panning With shot an erection. The panning shot Mama Bear is, is a skinned bear rug on the yeah. floor mm. at that point. like there, There's the bit where Geppetto is gleefully selling Pinocchio yeah. to the soldiers. Next, what have you got? This little wooden puppet. I'm not a puppet. I'm a real boy. Five shillings for the possessed toy. Take it away. Boss, Next, Help what me. have you got? There's also when Sh when Shrek uh, going back to the three bears or the two bears now when Shrek says does anyone know where Farquaad is Baby Bear puts his hand up and then Father Bear puts his hand down which is like I think Baby Bear wanted revenge <laughs> I think he wanted to go full I spit on your grave on Farquaad and but like. The way that Gingerbread Man is like, you get the, the torture sequence where Gingerbread Man is being dunked in milk. Run, 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 as fast as you can. You can't catch me. I'm the Gingerbread Man! You're a monster! I'm not the monster here, you are. You and the rest of that fairy tale trash poisoning my perfect world. Now tell me, where are the others? Eat me! <laughs> He's being dunked in milk, having his legs torn off, and, like, played with him in front of him. Yeah. Played with him. Morbid. <laughs> but, like, so much of this is the kind of... Again, it's kind of Katzenberg's middle finger to Disney, almost. Mm. It's it's mm. the traditional Disney fairy tale is something that he is... That here in this movie is an object of scorn, almost, and of, and of satire. It's It's like... And part of it's like there's there's a kind of nice progressive message to the movie as well that Fiona like turns into an ogre at nine and is so obsessed with you know meeting her true love that her true love's going to arrive and it's going to be you know Prince Charming and he's going to rescue her from the castle and they're going to kiss and she's going to turn into a beautiful human and that's going to be the end of the curse and she's going to live happily ever after in his his castle 
But, you know, the message of the movie is ultimately like, no, the guy that she falls in love with is the ogre. It's not Prince Charming. Mm. Her beautiful, you know, you know, her, t- her being free of the curse and turning into her beautiful self is not turning into the, the, the human form Cameron Diaz lookalike. It's turning into the ogre version of herself mm. full time, you know. Her being rescued by a prince, you know, Farquaad is not Prince Charming. He's not the good guy. He's he's a cruel despot. He's a fascist. The person that she falls in love with is is the the monster in, in another yeah. fairy tale. So there's a nice message to all that. And we can't get past the fact that Farquaad is John Lithgow. No, we cannot. John Lithgow was not it was not originally meant to be John Lithgow, it was originally meant to be Alan Rickman. I can run, see it. Run, run as fast as you can. I have a machine gun too. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just like sort of his sheriff of Nottingham at that point, isn't it? Like I would mm. cut your heart out with a spoon. The recording ended up conflicting with Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, so we went and did that instead. Fair enough. And I think, like, like I've seen so much John Lithgow since the last time I saw this movie. All I could see was Lithgow. Like, as soon as the voice came out of that body, I was like, oh, John Lithgow. Like, I've seen so much of him since then. All Third Rock from the Sun. He is our podcast patron saint. He is. We're a pro-Lithgow podcast. A pro-Lithgow, pro-werewolf, anti-cannibalism, anti-Jacksonism podcast. So... Well... One out of three is anti-Josh Hutchinson. Shut it's kind of like we have to do the Lithgow movies, you know? Absolutely. And he's great in this. He's this snide, little, mean piece of shit. Mm. But he also plays it up a yeah. lot. Like the, the champion shall have the honor. No, no. The privilege to go forth and rescue the lovely Princess Fiona from the fiery keep of the dragon. For any reason, the winner is unsuccessful. The first runner-up will take his place. And so on and so forth. Some of you may die, but it's a sacrifice I am willing to make. He gives it the energy that's absolutely necessary for the character. Because any more sinister, and it just simply wouldn't work. He, He gives it that sense of fun that's absolutely necessary for a character like this. Because... Farquaad wants to commit genocide on these fairy tale creatures. Wait, I just realized something. In the quote unquote masturbation scene, <laughs> which is a weird line to say about sh- a Shrek movie, he's watching Fiona on the magic mirror, right? Yeah. So Magic Mirror has to see all that. <laughs> yes, that's why he's got that disgusted look in his face. I feel so sorry for him. Hey, let's just say that magic mirror gets a short, the short end of the stick, doesn't it? The magic mirror, he tried to do his due diligence, though. He tried to do his job by saying, well, look, all of this aside, there is a curse, and he gets stopped. So he tried. Mm-hmm. He tried to warn him. So so we have all this subversion of these fairy tale archetypes, but at the same time, there's also, you can feel a genuine love for yeah. some of these fairy tale oh, archetypes yeah. as well. Like, it, it feels, in a lot of ways, like an homage to that stuff. A, a more kind of, like, subversive homage, but a, a, an homage that's rooted in affection. Yeah, like the Muffin Man thing. Mm. Or just the general, like, the, the whimsical quest nature. We're going to go yeah. to this 
this castle with a mode of fire and lava and there's this dragon there and we're going to, you know, poke fun at it along the way. But yeah. it's 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 a very traditional sort of archetype that it's doing there and it's having a lot of fun with it. Yeah. Even like the, like the idea of, you know, the curse that, you know, by night human, like the, the were-ogreth part of it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like these are all things that the movie is relatively straight-faced about. Yeah that general traditional fairy tale concepts. And I think the music yeah. helps out a lot. It's got a mm. fairy oh, tale absolutely. vibe. Yeah. The Harry Gregson Williams and, and John Powell score is very, very good. I love the needle drops that they've got in this. Mm. Mm. Obviously you've got All Star at the beginning. Somebody once told me the world is gonna roll me. I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. She was looking kind of dumb with her finger and her thumb in the shape of an L on her forehead. Which, which, you, you sent us an interesting picture, Lawson, the other day, and you were commenting on the beard length of the singer from Smash Mouth. Smash Mouth from Smash Mouth. Yeah. <laughs> no, Smash Mouth and the Smash Mouth. He has shaved his beard into, like, a bicycle helmet strap. That goes down under his ears, under his chin, and is like half an inch in width. Inconsistent width, I might add. <laughs> like, and I cannot get behind it. It's like the most early 2000s, you know? I used to I used to make fun of my mother. I used to say to her, you know, sure, the ice caps are melting and I may never own land, but at least I was never photographed in the 1980s. But <laughs> I don't know, the 90s kind of pushes it. Yeah, the early 2000s might be just as bad, if not worse. Mm. I feel like oh, we're, absolutely. We're, we're 10 years away from looking back at that and cringing like already we're starting to see it. Like, And, and this does have a very 2001 aesthetic to it. Yeah. Like it is mm. very, the music as well is like straight out of that era. Although some other like, I mean, <laughs> weirdly this movie is kind of responsible for the huge 21st century success of Hallelujah, yeah, <laughs> the Leonard absolutely. Cohen song, that it was sort of like, it was very well regarded and it was, it had been covered and, and it, it was, it was successful in music circles, you know, yeah. but like in terms of like, of everyone knowing about it in terms of it, like, you know, being on Saturday Night Live and, and being used as, you know, the you know, in, in Ugly Betty and, and in TV shows and things everywhere, like, the resurgence of it is so connected. I honestly wonder what Leonard Cohen's reaction would have been. Because Leonard Cohen was a very interesting figure, and I promise you, he's never watched Shrek in his life. <laughs> well, it, it wasn't his version of the song. It was I Jeff know it was his version, but he yeah. had to have known. And that was a weird thing, too, that, like, I was watching the movie this... Because I had the soundtrack, and I listened to the soundtrack a lot. So I was watching the movie this time, and I was like, hang on, because it's the Jeff Kale version, but the soundtrack is the, the Rufus... Yeah, Rufus Wainwright. Wainwright version. It's interesting. I, I do appreciate, though, that they don't choose the Leonard Cohen version, because he sounds like a death metal singer who's taken Prozac. Now I've heard there was a secret David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? 
Like, yeah. like it wouldn't fit it the tone. I, I love the Leonard Cohen version, though. Oh, I do it, too. It, it does. It's it's like that the sort of beaten down guy, the guy who's yeah, sort it's, of. It's the narrator of the song, you know. The Len- Leonard Cohen's voice and his lyrics. I don't know. We're we're a pro Leonard Cohen podcast, I assume. We are. Like it's just like he's he's able to capture the sublime, mm. and this brings me on to something from Shrek Retold. I want whoever is editing this section to put in part of that version <laughs> of Hallelujah. It's my second favorite version of Hallelujah ever. I heard there was a secret choir that David played and pleased the Lord, but I didn't know really. Do you care for the music, do you? I goes like this, a fourth, a fifth, a major fall, a major lift, a battle of king composing, hallelujah. <laughs> well, I mean, that was part of the, again, the, the, the way that the internet has taken Shrek and, like, made it, been a standard bearer yeah, for exactly. it, that you have this crowdsourced remake of, of amateur animation film i know that he's doing a second one isn't he? he's doing shrek 2 retold God, i hope so i can't wait for what they do with holding out for a hero yeah that is too. going to be exceptional but yeah before we move on from hallelujah i mean this has got nothing to do with shrek but like <laughs> hallelujah is one of my my top five favorite songs yeah like mm. my top five favorite songs are under pressure don't fear the reaper with or without you hurt the johnny cash version and hallelujah I'd, I've never realized it before. Oh my god, you're basic. <laughs> you're basic. <laughs> Those are the the most. What are you like, gonna say? You're a big fan of the disturbed version of Sound of Silence. I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is legitimately like the song choices that cannot be argued against. Like, there's nothing controversial there. It's like you have picked the literally the most popular songs. Ever. But like think about it also like I haven't picked like any of the wake up in the party wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy, you know. You picked the ones no one gonna argue. Every with you single about. song where everyone knows what that song is. Well, like, yeah, sure. Every single person on the face of the planet knows that song. Yeah. Those songs. Sometimes the like the best songs, that's what you get. I know, but <laughs> The thing that I hate about covers of Hallelujah. Yeah. Is they cut the two most important verses at the end. Yeah. They always do. They cut the the parts that I think are really crucial. They cut You'll say I took the name in vain. I don't even know the name. But if I did, well really, what's it to you? There's a blaze of light in every word. Doesn't matter which you heard, the holy or the broken, hallelujah. And then they have the... I did my best, it wasn't much, I couldn't feel, so I tried to touch. I've told the truth, I didn't come to fool you. Stand before the Lord of song with nothing 
Yeah. Those are so important to the general thing because otherwise it's just a guy saying how depressed he is, right? Yeah. How shitty his life has been. And, and, the, and the point of it is Leonard Cohen is trying to say that he, he's comparing this person to the sublime, to the holy. He is yeah. try, He's He was very much a romantic at heart and if anyone knows anything about Leonard Cohen, they would know that love and connection with people was the biggest thing in his life. Well, and, and this goes to show how seriously they take the concept of love in Shrek. Hmm. <laughs> Ooh, that is such a great, like, switch back onto topic. But just like, <laughs> the, like Shrek is responsible for the media proliferation of Hallelujah. In yeah, a really absolutely. Like, and and the popularity of all stars. Well, oh yeah. yeah. When SNL has got it, like that's like they did a whole thing on SNL. I I think I sent you the little clip. I can't find the full clip of it, but a skit where like this child is scared because she thinks that Smash Mouth lives in her closet, and <laughs> um, like like one of the beats of the thing is like that the closet is glowing and you think that Smash Mouth's about to come out and then like uh the wall next to her bed explodes and Smash Mouth rushes out and starts singing All Star like. Somebody wants to <laughs> Love that. That's good. But like also then you have like like Leonard Cohen died the same week as the twenty sixteen US election. Mm. And so the cold open for that episode of SNL was Kate McKinnon as Hillary Clinton singing Hallelujah. Yep. I did my best, it wasn't much. I couldn't feel, so I tried to touch. I told the truth. I didn't come to fool you. And even though it all went wrong, I'll stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah. Like that part of it's in there. And I mean, to get back to Shrek, because that is ostensibly what we're recording this podcast about. <laughs> it is a, it has had such a huge impact on the media. Yeah. Like just a phenomenal impact on our entire generation, you know? It's like the memes, the, the even like pre-meme, before, before memes even became kind of a thing, you were already seeing the Hallelujah stuff and the All-Star stuff and... It, yeah. it just became such a phenomenon in a way that is kind of rare. Like, Yeah. It also introduced young people to the particular idioms and idioc- idiosyncrasies of the actors in the film. Like mm. Donkey, he is a an amalgamation of the many different styles of Eddie Murphy. Fast talker, pop culture references. Yeah. He... he doesn't swear in it but you know that's and and he's so good in this like eddie murphy is is so good in this yeah like he is just overpowering it's it's incredible like his his energy is top notch Mm. it introduces you to mike myers and all of his shtick cameron diaz does her cameron diaz thing Mm. it gives us a princess who can kick ass yeah the whole robin hood sequence 
Yeah, and that song, I love it. And give to the needy. It takes a wee percentage. But I'm not greedy. I risk your pretty damsels. Man, I'm good. Take <laughs> it down. I like an honest fight and a saucy little maid. What he's basically saying is he likes to get paid. Something about like he likes a saucy maid and then yeah. the, the rest of them jump in. It's like, oh, really what we're saying is he likes to get any option says paid. And I only got the double entendre this time, you know? There's yeah. this. There's stuff here that is. I I I like when it, he she swings down, kicks him. His head hits the rock. Mm. Now I take my blade and ram it through your eyes. Keep your eyes on me, boys, cause I'm about to stop. He's dead. Like, I think he's out of commission forever now. The sound that his head makes when it hits that rock. And Harley, I want you to add it in here. That sound. He's dead. But, like, no, he's at the wedding at the end. Yeah, but he ain't the same. The Robin Hood that existed <laughs> is dead. And and that's the thing is that DreamWorks did, and DreamWorks has always done, and that Disney has actually copied now to keep up with DreamWorks when it was at its peak in, in the early 2000s. But the casting of these celebrity voices, yeah. and sometimes it works better than other times, you know. It is a different thing to be a voice actor than it is to be a live-action actor. you sort of got to project more with your voice in a way that, yeah. that live-action actors aren't used to doing. And, and one of the deceptive things is, you think you can just stand there mm. and say the lines, but you, can't. but you do have to get your body in. Yeah. yeah. You have to physicalize it still. So sometimes it, it doesn't work, but like here we get like really good examples of how bringing in these personalities, these, these movie stars, really does work. Like, and they just have the right chemistry with each other, even though in this first one they didn't record in the same rooms. Like, it feels like they did because they just, their voices just work with each other and their performances just work with each other in a way that is is rare in animation in general, but is even rarer when it's not veteran voice actors, you know? Yeah. They, they, they have a control over how their performance is going to work when animated that is really quite something. Let's also talk a bit about the animation quality. Mm -hmm. It still holds up pretty well. It does. It, it, it's a little flatter. The textures are a little little flatter. There's, there's not as many levels. Yeah. Like, you sort of get the ground, and then you get the grass on top of that as a separate element, you know? Like, like you, you can sort of see the gradations in, in the animation that they are still working with the early days of it, but it holds up well in a, in a lot of ways because of the art style. Yeah, and I, I just want to point out, like, how excellent the lighting is when Shrek is chasing those people away from his swamp, how he licks his finger and puts the fire out. The lighting there is exceptional. What I found, I found this interesting when we covered Toy Story last year as well. It's interesting to watch films of this type that you yeah. like. You, you're seeing the first one, which is at the very beginning of of that style of animation, to see it develop. Yeah, it's incredible. And I mean, uh, some of the retrospective stuff that they've got on the Blu-ray uh, that they show clips from all of the movies in it when they're talking about specific characters. And so, even though I haven't watched Shrek Forever After yet, I've seen a few clips of them. And it's just like the difference in like the detail of Donkey's fur. Yeah. Like, it, it's interesting to, like, compare shots from Shrek Forever After, which came out in, what, 2010, to shots from the first Shrek movie. It's just, like, the amount of detail in the scene is so much more. There is so much more on screen. There's so much more 
so many more elements in play at any given moment because the technology is there for it now. And you can sort of see how, I, I mean, it's sort of, it's not nearly as drastic, but it's sort of like that way where you look at, you know, PlayStation 2 games where they're yeah. sort of flat, flat, and the, the the environments are a little less detailed and a little more empty. But then you move on to more recent games and it's much more populated. With yeah, because when you're thinking back to these old games that you played a lot, you are filling in the blanks in your memory. Yeah. You do the same thing with animated movies. Yeah. But this is still remarkable work. There's the whole scene in the castle. Yeah. You've got the scene where Donkey and Dragon are sitting by that, that lake or river, I'm not sure. And the reflections are really good. There, That's some good water. And it's helped by, like, the style, you know? They've chosen a particular yeah. style that is really quite striking. Like, it, it, it has that such vibrant colours and all of these greens and blues and reds, and it's really bright. And all of the colours are really bright. And it has a sort of a fairy tale picture book quality to it. It has an illustrative quality to it. Mm. You know, it feels like if you freeze-framed the, the movie in some shots and then you, like, did a watercolour painting of that, like, that's something that you'd see in, like, a, a, a high-end reproduction of Grimm's fairy tales. Like, that specific shot of, and I hate to keep bringing it up, Shrek's butt. <laughs> I'm never going to live that down, am I? I don't think you will. All right. But, uh... <laughs> but, but I uh, have to thank you for revealing that part of yourself to us. <laughs> that shows that we truly are your friends. Oh, come on. You, you've you said and done far more insane things on this podcast. Don't think I'm having a go... I'm appreciating your friendship. <laughs> Live in this moment with me. Do you guys have a favorite side character? Just a favorite bit part? Felonius. I love when he says, pick number three, my lord, and he puts number up two three, fingers, my lord. Yeah. and then he sort of looks at his own fingers, mm. as if he's, like, really trying to figure out, is that two or three? He's a pretty decent henchman. Yeah. I also love the magic mirror, how he's like, uh, what it means to say is, uh, you're not a king yet, but you can become one. Yeah, they do a really good job at translating these fantasy characters. I like the big bad wolf, I think. I think that's yeah. mine. Oh, no, 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 no. Dead broad off the table. Where are you supposed to put it? The bed's taken. Huh? <gasps> what? Well, like, you know, when Prince Charming finds him in the tower at the beginning of the second movie, he's sitting in bed reading Pork Illustrated. Yeah. Yeah. I love the way that... You know, better joke. In the trailer, I don't know if it's just that, like, they were worried about... If they hadn't decided on what the the magazine cover was going to be, or whether um or whether maybe they thought Pork Illustrated was too racy to put in the trailer, I don't know what the thinking was. But in the trailer, it's a better joke. It's the new Porker. <laughs> I kind of like that one more actually. Yeah. I I quite I quite like Gingerbread Man. Gingy, <laughs> fire up the ovens, Muffin Man. We've got a big order to fill. That's scarily good as a gingerbread impression, Sean. Yeah, it's very close to the voice of the Toads in Mario. Mario! Is there anything else that you guys would like to touch on? Oh, I want to uh, give you a little bit of information about Lord Farquaad. His first name is Maximus Farquaad. Okay. I don't know where that... What happened to his parents? Did he kill them? Okay, in the, in the musical, this might be a little bit of a spoiler for the musical, but apparently in the musical, his father is the dwarf Grumpy. <laughs> okay. So he has this whole level of resentment 
to fairy tale creatures stemming from his father. Yeah, like he's a boomerang bigot. He yeah, and that's interesting. That kind of fits into what's even going on in the movie as well. That like he wants everything to be perfect and look perfect, but he kind of like his stature is something that he's so insecure about. You know, like he wants everything to look picture book perfect, but he doesn't look picture book perfect. He doesn't look like the six foot tall prince charming. Like to the point where even when he's riding on the the horse when he goes to pick up Fiona, he has fake legs attached to the horse to make him seem yeah. bigger. And it's like this is a movie that we could we could quote the rest of the movie to you audience, but that's not the best way of hearing those jokes. There's so many things to point out about it that we could spend another hour talking about it. And that would be and we'd still have shit to say, but yeah. There's too much to talk about. All right, why don't we move on to the IMDb Parents Guide. Hell yes. This, I was so happy reading some of these because it's kind of the gold standard for weirdly phrased, perhaps overreaction sometimes. I mean, it's what we we started this segment for. Exactly. While taking a mud shower, Shrek's butt is slightly visible and from a distance, a branch covers up his private spot. Did you zoom in on that one? (laughs) No, I didn't. <laughs> oh, it's baked into the podcast now. You, we couldn't remove it if, even yeah. if you wanted to. When Shrek sees Lord Farquaad's tower, he exclaims, Do you think he's compensating for something? And then laughs. Young children will think this is a reference to his height, but adults will see it a different way, being a clear reference to the size of his penis. <laughs> I also love how in the IMDb Parents Guide, they explain the joke. Yeah, they explain the joke. It's like the most blunt. It's like what I did with the the plot synopsis, where it's like taking the most seriously. Here's one which I think is kind of bizarre, an overreaction. Donkey says, in the morning, I'm making waffles in a seductive and sexual manner. No, he's not. (laughs) Hold on. No, he doesn't. He He says it in an excitable way. Not in a sexually aroused way. Does this person just have a thing for Eddie Murphy? I don't know. Oh no, maybe. While Farquaad is in bed looking at Fiona's pictures, a tiny lump forms in his blanket and he pulls it up, making an embarrassed face. This implies that he's having an erection. I did. I. I do want to note that this is the first time I've watched the movie as an adult. It's the first time I've watched the movie since I realised that there was a meme about this scene. And I do yeah. have to say... There's a lot of supporting evidence to suggest there that. There is. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. it's very hard to interpret that shot in any other way. Oh, absolutely. But there's just enough where the animators can go, oh, it's just a fold in the in the duna. Shrek and Fiona blow up a frog and a snake like balloons and let go of them, floating up towards the sky. They both most likely died a slow and painful death. Yes. That is a good. Yeah. That is a very good point. Fiona's singing causes a bird to explode, leaving its unborn children to perish at the hands of Shrek as they cook them over well, the stove. Technically, not those eggs were clearly not fertilized. What? If they were able to be eaten as fried eggs, they weren't fertilized. That that bird exploding bit. Every time we watch Shrek, Dad is in fits of laughter. Well. Speaking of, animal lovers might, fi- might find the bluebird explosion scene distressing. <laughs> it's brilliant, though. It even has a close-up of Fiona's mouth at the high note, showing her uvula vibrating and her mouth wide open, which may unease these viewers even further. 
I thought the more scary part of that is the sh- the frame right before the bird explodes where its eyes are like bulging <laughs> and it is puffed up. <laughs> like this bird is scared for its life. Why why does the pe- IMDb parents guide have a oral fixation? I don't know. Lord Farquaad is eaten by dragon. This is mildly amusing. A bear smokes a pipe in a few scenes. Okay. Shrek is well, seen eating eyeballs in the opening. Yeah. Well, they're actually quite good on toast. Anyways, why don't we each go around and say what our favourite scene or sequence is in this movie and who our MVPs are. I will start us off and I will say that as as much as I would like to say John Lithgow, because I feel like I've got a, I, I kind of probably should stick with the bit. You should simp for Lithgow. I, I really should, but like... Truthfully, the MVP here is Eddie Murphy as Donkey. It's such a great performance. It's it's such a great inhabitation of that character. I don't. How does Donkey and Dragon work? I let's not don't get know, Sean. Let's not bother with that, shall we? That's that's too disturbing a conversation. <sighs> Flash forward six months from now, I have never in my life said anything about Donkey Dragon interspecies sex. <laughs> I I wasn't specifically talking about sex. Oh, get real, Jean. We all know what you meant. <laughs> Don't try and pull that stupid lawyer crap with me. Being technically right is the best kind of right. You did say that. So, I actually didn't. I said being technically correct is the best kind of correct. Oh, fuck off. Oh, come on, you want to play these stupid games? I can play these games with the best of them, John. Anyways, Eddie Murphy... You should be playing this game against someone who has OCD. There you go. Just don't do it. I have a good memory and an, an obsessive retention of detail. So, Eddie Murphy just is... It, it is a great voice performance. It's a great inhabitation of that character. He makes that character what it is. I don't think that character works with pretty much any other actor. I mean, he is the force, the soul behind that character in such an important way. In a way that I think, frankly, you could recast most of the rest of the performers in this movie. I think Donkey is the one that is just so inextricable from the actor that's playing him here. Eddie keeps the same energy throughout the franchise. Hmm. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, I've got to go with the very end. I love the I'm a Believer reprise at the wedding. I love the little musical number there. It's great. I had that little track as my alarm waking up in the morning for a while. So I would, you know, wake up and it'd be like, Come on, y'all! And it would start that. I ended up getting rid of it because it was actually making me kind of hate the song because I was associating it with being woken up. (laughs) But I I really loved that scene. I I loved the sort of the energy and the irreverence of it. I think that sums up the movie really well. When? Okay, when you had that as your alarm... Was it, like, eyes closed, sleeping? Come on, y'all! Just shocked awake. Pretty much. Like, cause oh, it's, shit. Because it's like that, that, there's, a, like, a brief, I think, electric guitar, like, or an electric piano. It's like... Come on, y'all! And it was like, by the come on, y'all, I was like... <laughs> and I was awake. It's, it's, it's as, about as shocking as someone slapping you awake. Mm. You wake up afraid for your life every morning. Because you think Eddie Murphy is coming to kill you. <laughs> Yeah, anyways, that's me done. What about you guys? So, I think for me, I'll probably give it to... This is difficult. Do I want to go with the person who has been the MVP for the most times I've watched it, or for the most recent? Most recent. Most recent. Mike Myers, probably? Like, 
my heart is calling out to me. Say Lithgow, say Lithgow. But I can't. I have to give it to Mike Myers because there are those gentle moments when he he moves past that gruff exterior and he just is honest and vulnerable, which I appreciate a lot. And it is the relationship between him and Cameron Diaz that allows Fiona and Shrek to really work. And I think Shrek is just such a great, complex character as well. So I really like Mike Myers' performance here. It allows Mike Myers to have a lot of serious moments, because, God willing, the rest of his career is not going to do that. And my favourite moment, or sequence, I'll give it to from the moment they get to the castle. Not not Duloc, even though I love the Duloc song. <laughs> But when they get to the Fiona's castle with the dragon and everything, from the moment they step on the bridge to the moment they walk away with Fiona held over Shrek's shoulder, all of that is just absolute gold. The amount of great lines in that section are brilliant. The lighting, the animation is just exceptional. And it is really where a lot of the jokes about noble steeds and those twists on the saving a princess from a tower thing are done and i really love that holly i'd have to give my mvp to lithgow here one Um, of us had to i wasn't gonna go we weren't gonna go through this without at least one of us i I gotta say it is lithgow because i listened to the i watched the trailer um and the the like the the voiceover guy calls him john lithgow john lithgow I've heard both. Yeah, but also, like, the interview stuff on some of the movies. He calls himself Lithgow, so he probably knows how his name is pronounced. I, I mean, he would. He would be wild if he didn't. See, if I was... I would do it, though, like, I just do, like, random different pronunciations in different places and then act really indignant no matter what anyone called me because I'd say it's actually this other thing. I do love the <laughs> idea that of you doing an interview and the person saying... Ah, uh, so here I've got my guest, Lawson Kahini, <laughs> and you just acting really indignant, being like, it's actually Lawson Kahini. So yeah, I'm going to have to give my MVP to John Lithgow, because if he didn't come in with the fun energy that he has, the character simply wouldn't work. He'd become too much of a irredeemable tyrant or despot. He does want to commit genocide, after all. So you do have to do a lot of work to... Make those characters approachable for children? I don't know. I just really dig the the audacity of his voice when he's playing the character. Yeah. He he really goes that extra mile to make the character as silly as possible. With that music playing, he could seem like a threat. But as soon as he starts speaking, you know you're in safe hands because Lithgow's not going to let anything dangerous happen. <laughs> what? <laughs> the f- what is that meant to me? <laughs> That's such a weird thing to say. It's like you're imagining <laughs> being cradled in his arms like he's some kind of god. Aren't we all, though? <laughs> Jesus. My favorite 
scene, however, has to be the opening scene with All Star. You not only get the song All Star, you also get a good look at what Shrek's day is, and how solitary he is. He is having a good day, ultimately, doing all the stuff he wants to do, but there is still that essential loneliness, because he's just doing it by himself. Now, some people can operate by themselves quite well. Some people are quite independent. But a lot of the moments are still very striking in the sequence. And it's a really strong start to a really strong film. Well, actually, before we we move on, I do want to point out that they do insist that they are going to make a fifth Shrek movie. Yes. That this yes. has sort of been in the on the back burner for a long time. Like they've been been pretty much since 2014 that was the first time that they started to talk about it. But when Dreamworks was bought by NBC Universal in 2016, that's when they really started to like actually got a writer on it. Like Michael McCullers is the screenwriter that has been set onto this. He is the writer of the second two Austin Powers movies, the Boss Baby movies, and Hotel Transylvania 3. Not the greatest track record, but okay. He knows how to write for... Mike Myers. Yeah. Last last we heard was on November the 6th, 2018. It was reported by Variety that Chris Melodandry had been tasked to produce both Shrek 5 and Puss in Boots Two. He was the gentleman responsible for producing the Despicable Me franchise. Puss in Boots, we haven't heard anything about Shrek since, but in August 2020, DreamWorks trademarked the name Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. So it does appear like there are being action taken here. And it, it does say in that Variety report that the cast of the previous films will potentially be returning. I do wonder what that means for Cameron Diaz, given that she's retired. Did you know that she'd retired? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. That was yeah, a yeah, news yeah. story recently, like, where she was like, this is why I retired. But... Yeah, she hasn't worked in seven years. The last movie she did was that Annie remake in 2014. Do you think she might come back to just do it? Because it's... Oh, yeah, I'm sure that they'd be able to convince her. I'm sure that... Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that for a pre-existing character with that kind of legacy, they could probably, like... Yeah. And, you know... Knocking on a door with $10 million probably would go a long way, too. Like, the reason that she cites for not not acting anymore is she didn't like the travel. You know, she didn't like constantly yeah. being away from home and being away from her family and everything. I'm, I mean, and that's not so much a problem with animation. You just go into your local... They could probably organise... Unless she lives, like, in a hut in the woods somewhere, they could definitely organise some sort of recording studio very close to her that she could go in and yeah. record at. Yeah, they've they've been recording a lot of voiceover stuff from home mm. recently ever since the pandemic started so there's frameworks in place to accommodate yeah. people's real life so i'm sure exactly. that we will see shrek again perhaps 20 years from now they'll take the the disney route and do a live action remake of the shrek stage musical use the cats technology on puss in boots and donkey use the cats no. technology on shrek no. No! Just seeing the guy dressed up as Shrek in that Broadway play, even that's weird. I can't I can't it's imagine. Upsetting. I can't imagine what it would look like if they had to actually make it look realistic for a for a camera, you know? Next week we will not be doing a deep dive into a movie. We will be doing something different. Our long teased, long promised, and I am sure long awaited episode on our favourite films of twenty twenty. It's what I'm sure you've all been waiting for. 
You've been sitting here thinking, where is it? How will I know what movies to watch? Well, we're going to tell you. We're each bringing our own top 10 favourite movies of 2020 to the table next week. We will be having an in-depth discussion about that in place of our deep dive. We'll still be doing the What We've Been Watching segment. It is our favourite movies, not the best movies, you know. It's not the best movies that we've seen. It's our it's our favourite. We, we, we kind of, the ethos of the list lists that we will be bringing here is sort of like you should be able to get a pretty good idea of our tastes if you yeah. if you took a look at that and you know everything that we say on this podcast if it's about like how we feel about a movie it is subjective yeah i'm very much looking forward to that i've got my rough draft already done so tune in next week which will also be our last week of the podcast as i don't know why we're doing this the week after that we will be switching to the long watch on march 13th if you want to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exo the Candy Counter. You can find John and I at On the Bright Side. You can also reach us through our Twitter. That's the best place to give us episode-specific feedback. That Twitter is going to stay. I will rename it, of course. It's just that the the Earl will stay the same. You can also rate, comment, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. On particular podcast apps, they don't do comments for specific episodes but for the show on the whole. But please do comment, because it looks good for the algorithm. And if we please the algorithm, it chooses to spread the show around. You can also share with your friends, particularly coming up onto uh, top of 2020. That's a good jumping on point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you could always look back at the back catalogue, because there's a decent amount of stuff there. Oh yeah, this is what, our 69th 69th! Nice! Yeah. Well, technically our 71st when you include those two bonus episodes, but... That's true. But 69th numbered one. But still, nice. Yeah, I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and will continue, to be Jean Lewis. What are you doing in me swamp? Don't care. Can you please do a Shrek, like, thing, Lawson? Please. I... Why do you always try to make me dance for you like a performing puppet? Dance, monkey, dance! Maybe not a cry has ever heard a night of somebody's pain and the light of old and broken. Hallelujah! 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 You love Shrek. I will, I will, I will. I can't wait to see her. I love my my wife better than I love any sweet ice cream or any favorite hobby I've ever had. I love my lady Shrek. I hope you find someone too, Dave. I think she's, I don't think she's a Shrek. Yeah, she's a Shrek. She became she a Shrek. Oh, okay. I don't know. She became a Shrek from a human. Okay. I have the videos at home. Cool.